from the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet, ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. Uh, it's Friday, and so are we. And uh, again, we're here with our friend John Horgan. John's a science writer. He writes occasionally for Scientific American, various other places. Wherever they'll have him, he'll go. And uh, uh, we had John on several weeks ago talking about cancer, and I enjoyed the discussion so much that I I called him today and I said, what the hell are you doing this afternoon? And he said, oh, you know, several important things. And I said, well, would you would you talk to me instead? And he said, ah, all right, what the hell? <laughs> so here we are. I don't I haven't even discussed this with John. So this might be a really interesting discussion. I, I wanted to talk to him about the current the current situation with COVID-19. Uh, John, being a science writer, is going to have informed opinions about uh, a couple of different aspects of this. And I want to know what he thinks about the disease, and I want to know what he thinks about the economic ramifications of this thing. So we're going to talk about the whole thing. John, thanks for being with us today. Sure. My pleasure, Mark. So uh, we were just talking a minute ago about uh, uh, there is a paper been released. uh, It was last Friday. I think it was published or the pre-publication. It hadn't been reviewed yet. Is that right? The the Santa Clara County uh, study that uh, was an antibody study that uh, was attempting to take a sample of the population in Santa, Santa Clara County, California, and extrapolate those results out to the whole county to see how many actual infections they thought uh, were were present in the county so that we could get a little bit better indication of the fatality rate of the disease. And uh, what I understand is right now that uh, there were some uh, objections, some preliminary objections to the statistical analysis, and I think they're in the process of correcting some of those and uh they're going to reissue the thing what have you heard about that i i don't think i've heard as much as you have to be honest uh i've read a couple of references to this paper online i haven't read the paper itself but i've seen some discussion of it all i can say is john ioannidis is a very serious meticulous researcher he often comes up with very controversial positions, um, especially challenging the scientific mainstream. But I'd say over time, his conclusions have been validated by subsequent research. This has happened in some of the things he said about the medical literature, for example. We talked when we talked about cancer, I was relying for my own very critical analysis of cancer medicine on some research done by Ioannidis and a bunch of other people. So as far as this recent paper you're talking about uh, on how many people actually are infected versus the number of people who have died, um, it doesn't surprise me that he would be doing this because he had a paper, I think, in late March that was questioning the response to this epidemic and whether maybe we were overreacting so he was he was saying some of the same things that people around the country have said uh which is that maybe the cure is worse than the disease but if i may just comment on what i understand about his new paper you know so he's he's looking for people who have been infected, but they're not still showing symptoms, so they have antibody responses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is really important research, so we know exactly how many how many people have actually uh, been in- infected and, and are protected from being reinfected, possibly. Um, and it seems to me one way you can interpret it is that there are, there are many more people infected than we've assumed previously, and that means that the number of fatalities 
as a proportion of the number of infections is really low. And that is good news, all right? Yes, yes, it is. But the bad, the bad side of it is that this thing is much more infectious than we've assumed. And it's spreading more rapidly through the population uh, than we assumed. Mm-hmm. You still have the problem that the reason that I don't think a comparison of this to, uh, to the flu is appropriate is because we already are very quickly reaching the same uh, numbers of fatalities as a really bad flu season. I mean, it blew past 40,000, I think, yesterday or the day before, 40,000 fatalities for the United States. And uh, that, you know, there's no sign that this is going to stop any anytime soon. I've seen data from New York City. The New York City Public Health, uh, New York City Health Department keeps a daily updated website. I don't know if you've seen this thing that uh, their, their graph under daily counts uh, it's like the third thing down on the page, and the daily counts regard, regard uh, they record cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. All three of those parameters are, are tailing off rather strongly. Right. Even in, in New York City, which is an obvious outlier because the rest of the country has not experienced uh, this situation at all to the, to the same extent New York City has. And... Uh, the the question on everybody else's mind that doesn't live in New York City or, or northern New Jersey is, uh, what about us? Right. You know, when do we get to go back to work? When are we going to be allowed to leave our homes? And, uh, you know, the the so I, I want to talk about the disease, but I want to talk about the economic ramifications of an over-response to the disease, and the over-response to the disease is largely due to the fact that the models very early on that predicted in excess of 2 million deaths in the United States were so laughably wrong that, uh, I mean, you know, an order of magnitude or three wrong. And here you're talking about 40,000 deaths. They were talking about 2.2 million. They're not comparable numbers. And the response to one and, and the response to the other, uh, I mean, our, our H1N1 death toll back in 2009 and 10 was 61,000 people. Now, those are estimates. Of course, all flu numbers are estimates uh, because people don't test for the flu. But... But IFI, influenza-like illnesses, uh, during that epidemic killed, the last number I saw was 61,000 people. Uh, and, and here we are, we've got flu season and COVID-19, and I don't know what the number is right now if you combine those two. I don't know what it is. But I do know that as of last Friday, 22 million people had filed for unemployment. And yeah. that's just the number of people that have filed for unemployment. Including both yeah. of my children, by, by the way. Yeah. And, I mean, this is, uh, you know, I'd hate, I hate to be all adult and everything, but, you know, people die. And people are out of work all the time. Mm-hmm. But... To compare those two phenomena, um, I mean, this is a this is another discussion, and uh, uh, and I know nobody wants to have that discussion. Everybody would like it if nobody died, but you know, we're all grown ups and shit, and we know that everybody dies. And uh, to put maybe thirty five million people out of work so far, and that's not that's not over. Uh, Absolutely. So that uh, people don't get sick and die. That's just not, that's not rational. I, I want to go back to, to what, you know, the, the figure of 2.2 million, I think yeah. it was. And this was from a study done by a, uh, a British university. Uh, Neil Ferguson was his name. 
Yeah, yeah. I think it was Imperial College London, and yeah. and was very influential. Uh, the Trump administration took it very seriously. A lot of other people took it seriously. That two million figure was an estimate of what would happen if we did nothing. Well, we, now that's that's an interesting thing because I had uh, I've been told I, I don't know where I picked this up that all of those all of those early estimates those models all factored in uh, the new word of the of the year social distancing into into that model they they all had considered uh, mitigation procedures not uh, just completely let's just you know slobber on each other and and do like we always do and uh, uh, you know, that's pretending like we do that in flu season. We don't. We don't act that way in flu season. Nobody does. Uh, some, you know, people over the millennia have learned that in the winter you wash your hands. Uh, but let's just – so the 2.2, let's say that it didn't involve any mitigation. Well, that's kind of a silly assumption to make with a model about a disease that's going to kill a bunch of people. You know, so I don't know where he came up with that. And, and in fact, uh, within 10 days, he had retracted that number and revised it back down to 60,000. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, and, and you remember, that was a couple of weeks ago when, when that was revealed. And, and uh, I'm just thinking, my God, how careful was the man? You know? Yeah. Um, I, I I don't know what to tell you. I suspect that you know more about this than I do. But no, I'll just... I don't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't suspect that if I were you. Uh, but I, I do know that we've got some lunatic running around here in Wichita Falls telling everybody still to this day that this uh, COVID nineteen is ten times as deadly as the flu. And you really had to have turned off the internet. Uh, to still be running around talking like that because that's just not the case and public health policy made under that assumption is going to be very expensive and very very wrong can i let me just give you a, a piece of information i heard a discussion of this exact issue on a radio show i was interviewed i'd be an interviewed as an expert even though i'm very far from an expert and uh one of the actual experts on this show was talking about the you know the rate of infection and how there are some of these estimates that say that there are a lot more infections uh than we think they are than than are actually being counted and therefore the fatality rate is quite low he said he said the problem is that the cruise ships when you have these closed populations where pretty much everybody is infected, they're seeing very high fatality rates. So at this point, the uncertainties are so enormous that they're trying to reconcile data from all these different sources. The cruise ships are a big, important data point that are pretty scary when it comes to uh, fatality rates. But if you look at the the rates from different countries to extent that we have reliable data they show they show fatality rates that are all over the place well and and, you know i think we we both understand that this particular disease selects old people to kill and if you get any skew in that direction in your demographic you're gonna you're gonna show different data than if you look at a generalized population across all demographics. Uh, For for example, I don't know how many, I think you probably can count on the fingers of both hands the number of people under the age of five that have died all over the world from this disease. It just doesn't kill children. It's it's tiny, fortunately, yes. And, uh, And if you're over the age of 75, you've got something like a, 20 times more higher likelihood of dying from the disease than somebody even under the age of, of the age of 55. Uh, right. So, and, and cruise ships are all skewed toward old people who can afford to go on a cruise. Uh, I'm, I'm less concerned with those little small sample non-representative demographic groups 
uh, you know, the the thing early on, what was the princess, what was the, the, I keep trying to call the ship the Princess Bride, but that was a, that was a movie. <laughs> what the hell was the name of the cruise ship that was, that, that it received a lot of, uh, uh, received a lot of uh, attention. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think something on the order of 17% of the people on that ship were actually infected despite the fact that it was a closed environment. But then you look a little bit closer at the data and you see that the seed cases were removed from the ship early. And there were several other mitigation uh, factors that were involved in, in this. And so uh, it, it wasn't necessarily good data in either direction because the skewed demographic and they removed some of the early cases. But uh, I... I uh, Listen, you're raising really good questions. I'm not sure where to go with it. I mean, I, I was just on a uh, conference call with all the faculty at my university. I, I'm in Hoboken, New Jersey, at mm -hmm. uh, school, an engineering school called Stevens Institute. And uh, we were talking about whether we're going to be open next fall. <laughs> and this is uh, this would be a, a huge blow. What Students don't want to pay all this money. No. to be with their parents having online learning. You know, and, and if you keep charging them all that money, they're going to go somewhere else. And uh, this this may end up being a very important uh, social experiment in terms of the value of homeschooling. <laughs> you yeah. know, you're, they're going to, uh, there are going to be so many unintended consequences of this ridiculous exercise in, in hysteria uh we will be sorting this out for generations we yes. will we will this is a this is the most profound thing that's happened uh certainly over the past couple of hundred years this is uh and and it's 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 profound in that it is powered entirely by fear fear of getting sick and you know you can you can uh, attribute that to human nature you can attribute that to politics you can attribute it to a, a complicit media uh, you know but if everyone around you is uh, terrified about this for one reason or another um, and people do silly things when they're scared, you know, I remember, uh, last year I was having to kill some rattlesnakes out on the side of my hill at the house. And one of them, uh, struck and got one of his fangs hooked in my pant leg <laughs> And I did stupid things for about 10 seconds, real stupid things for about 10 seconds, some of which I don't even remember doing. Fear makes you do stupid shit. It yes, really it does. And, and this situation is, uh, uh, is definitely a buddy of mine saw a guy the other day jogging down a country road with a mask on. People are treating this like it's Ebola. And it's not. Now, if this was Ebola, uh, you know, the, the Chinese would have a lot better bioweapon on their hands, wouldn't they? Uh, this is. Mark, uh, let me just, I guess, I think it's certainly possible that you're right and we're going to look back on this even, I don't know, a couple of months from now. Uh, yeah, I think so. And say that we grossly <laughs> overreacted. I guess my position, and maybe it's just because I'm, I don't know, I'm closer to uh, to the epicenter in the United States, uh, being in northern New Jersey, right across the river from New York. I I think it's 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 too early to say, and that this that all the uh, not the worst predictions, but some of the really serious predictions 
could still turn out to be true, that the cases are still multiplying rapidly. Let me, I, I could just give you a per personal perspective. I'm pretty sure I was infected about six weeks ago. Me too. Oh, I, really? Yes. Okay. Uh, let me, let me, I don't know what your experience with it, with it was, but we had gone to Las Vegas middle of February to do a, a seminar. And then we had another seminar in Wichita Falls the first weekend of March. Uh, I got sick about, oh, 10 days, 11, 12 days after we got back from Las Vegas. And mm -hmm. I was sick, kind of sick on Thursday, pretty sick Friday, sick Saturday. And Sunday afternoon, about 5 o'clock, I felt okay. But I, I, and I had all of the, I, maybe you're going to probably tell me the same thing. You were coughing. You had an unproductive mm -hmm. cough. You were very, very tired. You might've been conscious of a low grade fever. And that would have been, you know, your, the skin on your back hurt. Your low mm -hmm. back skin hurts. That's what fevers do. And, and I have been, I've been coughing ever since, but I've been coughing a lot for quite some time. It's like that. <laughs> and I will tell you that my O2 sat has been down about 93%. And What's I've, that? I'm, O2 saturation, your uh, oxygen okay. saturation in your blood. My heart rate has been elevated, mm -hmm. abnormally elevated. My O2 saturation has been lower. In in fact, I am showing the same numbers on my little pulse oximeter in Wichita Falls that I normally show at 9,300 feet in Colorado. Hmm. And I have no doubt that that's what I had. Uh, Nick yeah. had it when we got back shortly after I got sick, he got sick. What, what did you feel when you had this thing? I, uh, I had started off as like, my throat was kind of scratchy. I was, I was uh, coughing a little bit. And then uh, about 24 hours later, I felt like shit. I felt achy all over. I started feeling getting really hot. I was sweating a lot. And I had maybe 48 hours where I was as sick as, I, as I've been as an adult. This but, was, uh, I, I lost my appetite for, for a while. I sweated through, I was wearing four or five t-shirts a night because they would be completely drenched in sweat. Wow. I was, I was, uh, I had the chills too. So it was the first time. Oh, you had a pretty good fever then, didn't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was, oh, yeah. I was really sick. If it happened to me now, I assumed it was the flu then because this was so early. Yeah. That's what I, I said, you know, I, I never really got that much. I didn't feel like I had the flu. I felt like I had a chest cold. Yeah, no, and, I was, I was sick. If I got it now, I would be terrified that, you know, I might die of respiratory failure any that, minute. I probably would have gone funny? to because you, and you weren't terrified then, but you would be terrified now. now they've, was, done, they've done their job, I, haven't they? Yes. <laughs> I, I didn't I, lose my sense of smell, but I almost lost my sense of smell. I've lost my sense of smell during the during a head cold and a chest cold several times. What I've noticed when that happens is that uh, uh, it starts at the bottom and comes up. I can feel it progressing from lower thoracic up into higher thoracic, and then if it goes up my throat, it'll end up in my sinuses, and I won't be able to smell. Yeah. Uh, it didn't get that far this time. I got real aggressive with it, and I washed my nose out with salt water three or four times a day, and I think that kind of killed it back a little bit. But it didn't get that far along. I've lost my sense of smell several times, mm -hmm. and but I recognized that that was I was headed in that direction. I certainly was. Did you lose your sense of smell? It didn't even occur to me. To, I don't, to think about my sense of smell. I was so, I felt you're, so crappy. It's so a goddamn so, sick that it, <laughs> it didn't matter. I, I, remember, yeah. I, I, did, I did, it was dinner time and I made myself uh plate of food and I looked at it and I thought, oh, it looked disgusting. <laughs> I completely lost my appetite. I never threw up, but I was kind of nauseous. And these are all very common symptoms. Right. 
So I don't know. I it, for me it was it was it was pretty serious. I don't know what to tell you, Mark. I think I think this is this is an issue that we're all going to be grappling with. Mm-hmm. And as I said, I think it's kind of too early to know whether this is a reaction. Do you want to get into the politics of this? Because I'm I'll just tell you right now. I'm a I'm a classic bleeding heart liberal Democrat, maybe even well, to the of left. Of course, you live in New Jersey. Jesus Christ, I you know, and I'm I'm on the opposite end of the of the of the spectrum. I'm a self-employed, sixty-five-year-old, uh, sixty-four. I'm sorry, sixty-four-year-old Texan, and yeah. uh, I am uh, I'm a I'm a conservative libertarian. Uh, mm-hmm. I am real unhappy with other people assuming that their judgment about my affairs is better than mine. That that irritates me real bad. This is the same problem that comes up in the context of of vaccines in general, is that uh, the libertarian position is sort of tricky because our individual decisions have social effects. Mm-hmm. So, they you know, can, you can, sure. you can yeah. opt out of getting a vaccine, but if, if too many people opt out, you lose the herd immunity that, you you know, it's all those no, kinds I, of things. I understand that, and I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I mean, I've, you know, I've got a science background just like you do, and I think that's an absurd position. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I'm also aware that they are trying to get a vaccine ready so fast and if they ram the thing through by virtue of the fact that they've made people very very afraid of catching this disease when they needn't be afraid to catch the disease i'm i'm aware of the of the science that indicates that sometimes vaccines if they're not properly prepared can cause an immune system over response yeah and that is a serious. That's a serious problem. I think that once the vaccine is introduced, um, I think that there's a lot of a lot of reasons to take the thing. But by the same token, I just saw something on this yesterday. There are some indications that the old-fashioned oral polio myelitis vaccine might show immune system boosting for this. Hmm. And, and, you know, that's, that's damned interesting, isn't it? Uh, you just need a little bit. Your immune system needs a little bit of help. But if you overstimulate it, then you have the, 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 the potential to start producing, uh, you know, uh, a hyperactive immune response to things that don't need to be acted upon. And as we know, that's kind of like autoimmune disorders and, uh. These Listen, things are, this is something that has to be considered by this by this blanket approach. And if we're we are pro- propelled forward into this into this process by irrational fear, which is what's going on right now, mm-hmm. then uh, we we are going to make some serious mistakes. I want to go back to what you just said about vaccines, because this is something that I thought of writing about about a month ago. Uh, I. I came across a couple of papers on uh, suggesting that the flu vaccine might actually make people more susceptible to non-flu infections, including the coronavirus. Interesting. And there was a paper, uh, a study done of Defense Department personnel. It was a big, big study. Uh, I think it was a couple of hundred thousand people and who all got the flu vaccine. Mm-hmm. And then they looked at them over time to see how, how susceptible they were to other infections. And it turned out that the people who got the vaccine were more susceptible to a coronavirus. This is pre-COVID-19. It was earlier coronaviruses. Mm-hmm. But they were more susceptible to coronavirus infections than people who had not gotten the flu vaccine. Yeah. So, And meanwhile, we're all being told to get the flu vaccine because then there's more room there in the hospitals for people who get uh, COVID-19 before we get a vaccine to that. And this is something that it's called, it's called like vaccine 
interference or something. It's like you get vaccinated for one thing and it might make you more vulnerable to a different pathogen. Right. Um, and I, I wrote the, uh, the lead author on this one paper because this seemed extremely important to me um, and asked him to comment. And he just referred me to Air Force Public Affairs. And <laughs> I, I'm hoping well, no, to that's write. interesting. Well, uh, it because it's obviously so controversial. Yeah, right? he didn't want to. He didn't want to go on record uh, right. about that. You can kind of understand the. Uh, uh, so I'm just telling you that I agree that we need to be I, careful. I have had the flu shot every year since it's been available. Hmm. Uh, I remember a long, probably 30 years ago. I remember getting the flu twice in one winter, and. I didn't want that shit again. Right. That was a that was a long couple of months. And uh, so I've had the flu shot every year, and I haven't had the flu in a long time. But I've, for as, as many people as you talk to that will tell you that, you'll talk to people that have had the flu shot, and they say, hell, I get the flu shot every year, and I get the flu every year. So it doesn't seem to matter. Uh, I, you know, you can go either way on the flu shot. Some years it works better than other years. This year I heard it was like 20% effective. And, uh, but I, my thinking on it is 25 bucks, you know, what the hell? But I didn't, I wasn't aware of the fact that, uh, it, it might be interfering with, uh, immune response to, to coronaviruses. I will keep that in mind uh, since now, looking back on my particular situation, uh, I'm real sure I had this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure all of the symptoms were equal to, to, you know, a mild case of what, of, uh, of the way COVID-19 is usually described. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. And it may be because I had the flu shot. That's something to think about. But, uh, this overwhelming the healthcare system thing has been has been the reason we've been told, and you mentioned this that we've been told that we all need to to do all these quarantine procedures, and really this is a reverse quarantine. We're keeping everybody else inside. Normally in a quarantine, you keep sick people inside. Uh, this reverse quarantine was so that we didn't overwhelm the healthcare system. It appears to me is that that every possible thing you could do wrong we have done right every single possible thing we could do wrong has been done i mean but it's like we went through and decided well let's see what would make sense in this situation well let's do the opposite of that so here in wichita falls and this is this is true all over the country except for where you are mm-hmm. our hospitals are empty We've got two hospitals in Wichita Falls. This is 125,000 market. We got a large corporate evil hospital downtown. And we have a private hospital out on the west side of town. Private hospitals closed. And the large evil corporate hospital downtown is about 80% empty. And the reason for this is they stopped accepting they stopped accepting what were considered non-essential, which means anything except COVID-19 related cases. Hmm. Uh, I don't know what's going on down there now, but the last, this is, uh, we're recording this on a, a Wednesday, just so you people in the far distant future will know that there's a two day delay between when I'm talking to John and when you're watching this. Last week, uh, our little ICU, at uh, the downtown hospital here was empty. Hmm. It was empty. There was no one in the ICU. And uh, and the hospital's losing its ass. All hospitals around the country that are in this situation are losing their asses right now. Uh, and this is a gigantic loss of income for, for lots and lots of people, not just, you know, I, the... the, the the effects of this bizarre overreaction to this thing uh, are rippling through the. Uh, a lot of people are getting a real serious economics lesson right now. What are what are the acceptable numbers of deaths? And I, this is one of these adult questions that nobody wants to talk about. 
especially yeah. if you're a politician. You know, our the, the brilliant governor of, of New York has been on record several times as saying if it saves one life, it was worth it. The only people that say that are people who have to be elected. <laughs> but but people that have uh, actual responsibilities to more than just the average voter understand that that's not a reasonable thing to say. It's not a reasonable thing to say. I mean, I'm looking at this data every day. I've got this thread on my board that I'm babysitting about every 30 minutes. And, and I'm, as, I'm probably as plugged into this as a lay person can be. Uh, and I'm seeing things tailing off real hard. I'm not seeing exponential growth. The thing mm-hmm. appears to have peaked in New York City on about the 2nd of April. And it's, uh, you know, I'm real sorry about New York City, but if you concentrate 10 million people in uh, a 30 square mile area, you've got a transmission vector there that the rest of us don't deal with. Right. Is it fair to put the rest of us under the same quarantine procedures, lockdown procedures, house arrest procedures? What, what are people talking about in Texas? I assume that the governor of Texas has quite a bit of power to determine local the governors of all the states are, are basically the ones that have decided all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the governor of Texas is generally a pretty good guy, but I think he's kind of rolled over on his back on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know him, so he won't ever hear me say that about him, but you know, I, you know, pretty much like the guy, but this is, this is unnecessary and it's expensive. And, uh, and he's got a responsibility to a whole bunch of people who are not sick. He's got more responsibility to a bunch of people who are not sick than he does to a bunch of people who might get that way. Don't you think it's possible he's seen some models that suggest that your big urban areas are going to uh, start looking like New York before long? My understanding so. is that there's just a time lag. New York is a very international city. you got a lot of travelers coming mm-hmm. from uh, Europe who infected New Yorkers. And so we're, you know, we started really early here. Mm-hmm. And you, you might be right that we're tailing off at this point. Uh, but that, I don't know, Houston and, you know, the big cities in Texas and Chicago and Los Angeles, uh, that they are going to be going through what we've gone through at some point. There just might be a time lag of a couple of weeks. Well, if he's saying that, uh, if he's seeing that data, he is not really paying any attention to it. Mm-hmm. Because what he has said is that... Uh, uh, we are, he's going to allow the state, I really like that word, allow. That makes me feel warm and happy <laughs> when I'm allowed to use my property. Uh, uh, next Monday, which is Monday the 27th, is when he's going to relax some things. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, uh all your schools I, I, are shut down. Yeah, all the schools are shut down. Schools, are, they just canceled school from, you know, the whole semester has been canceled. Hmm. Uh, all the public schools are shut down. Uh, all the kids been sent home. They'll have they'll miss three months of school this year. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm of the opinion that that's probably not a terrible thing. <laughs> public <laughs> schools do so, such a shitty job of what it is there's if i was as shitty as the public schools i'd be starving to death right now but uh they they do a terrible job and they're closed and that's good as far as i'm concerned but the uh if he's seeing data that that indicates that houston and dallas are about to explode with covid19 he's i haven't seen any data that indicate that i what data i've seen is that new york city is kind of by itself at the level in the level of transmission and the level of infection. Mm. And I haven't seen, uh, I mean, California has not reacted that way. Yeah. Uh, there's not any place else in North America that's, that's behaved in terms of this, uh, epidemiology, the way, uh, New York city has, uh, it's, 
it's interesting to me that we have been so willing to stop participating in doing business with each other. Uh, I mean, you know, just as a general observation, work is a way to turn time into value, Hmm. right? And we've all been out of work now for a month. You know, a lot of us have been out of work now for a month, and that's a whole bunch of value that's been lost. The uh, second quarter GDP estimate, have you seen that? I have not. I, I just down twenty five percent. Wow. I mean, now think about that. That yeah. now that's a projection. It could be wrong, but based on what we've seen, first quarter, second quarter GDP, which ends June thirtieth, is projected to to have lost twenty five percent. That's never happened before. That didn't happen in the nineteen. 20s and 30s it's never happened in any other situation especially not over one quarter to another quarter it's never occurred and we i don't it's it's impossible to predict the ramifications of that it really is uh but that's a very profound event and i you know here here's here's my real important question all right everybody's modeling how many people are going to die of covid19 is anybody modeling how many people are going to die as a result of the response to COVID-19? As I recall, I'd like to that, know what those numbers are. As I recall that Ioannidis essay, or maybe it was something else. He talked that was, about it on this video. So, I saw him yeah, record. Well, as I recall, there were, I, there were some figures relating every, uh, relating unemployment to uh suicide to to mortality yes uh and uh suicide illness poverty starvation privation hunger uh depression mental illness all this other stuff it i mean they've they've calculated every time unemployment goes up one percent there are numbers associated with that there's a cost associated with it and i'd like to see the model that associates what we know about the current unemployment situation and all the businesses that are closed and all of the businesses that you in New Jersey, the place you used to like to go eat, it's gone. It's gone. It's not coming back. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, what about all the stuff that makes New York the greatest city on earth? You know, little shops and cafes and stuff. They're gone. You know, I, there's a lot of big restaurants that I used to like to go to in, in Dallas, Fort Worth. You probably heard of Papa Doe, the Pappas Brothers uh, family of restaurants. They're all, are they going to be in existence after this? How do you, they've been talking about, I, I heard, uh, talked to a friend of mine in Denver today. They're going to allow, allow, there's that word again, allow restaurants to open but no more than 30% of their capacity hmm. at no more than 30% of their capacity. In other words, Friday night is going to look like Tuesday night. Right. How can a restaurant do that? I would assume the only way they could make it work right. is if this is a transition back to business as normal. But I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think some people are talking about restaurants having to, build social distancing God. permanently into their that's floor just, plan. That's, look, here we've never look, this is this is so insane. We have had communicable disease, we've had smallpox for our history on the planet. We have shared this place with viruses and bacteria. And we have never allowed them to dictate the way we operate society before until six weeks ago. And right. furthermore, and I think this is terribly important, this is going to happen again now, isn't it? And what are we going to do next time? What are they going to do to us next time? And what does that do to future investment decisions that mm-hmm. people make? They've divided us into essential and non-essential businesses. 
John, if you got investment money, are you going to invest in a non-essential business like a haircut salon, like a bar? They're non-essential. There's, then there's uh, the surveillance issue. I mean, oh, a my lot God. Of- they're drones. They're operating drones to make sure that you stay in your house. Right. Oh, God. And, uh, you know, scanners to make sure that your temperature is okay and the possibility of biometric data being uh, gathered from your cell phone to find out if, uh, you know, you're feverish or right. you have uh, symptoms of... Uh, I. I'm not interested in living in a society that controls every aspect of my activities. It's certainly not every aspect of my business during the day. And uh, I'm 64. Look, if, you know, six years from now, you know, I'm 70 and I have to die of coronavirus so that uh, the kids here in the room with me don't have to, don't have to live in a police state. Hey, I've had a good time. You know, I've had a good life. I've got to do a bunch of cool stuff. Listen, let me know? just let me address that. My last post for Scientific American was whether uh, on whether the headline was something like, "Is COVID nineteen going to going to make us more socialist?" And in it, I tried, I tried yeah. to yeah, you'd love it, Mark. Yeah. I tried to distinguish there is democratic socialism. Uh, which I think is benign, where you have a government-organized response to a pandemic like this that's just sensible and even necessary. And then you have an authoritarian, compulsory, uh, socialist response of the kind that you get in China, for example, where if you get infected, they're going to take you and put you somewhere and put you under mandatory quarantine, and they tell you when you can get out. So it seems to me that we've got to figure out how to be able to, maybe we're overreacting to this one, but let's say we're not. How are we going to react to this and to other pandemics in the future? We've got to do it in a way that's consistent with basic human rights and our desire for privacy and with democracy. That's the question. We are right now 20,000 people away uh, from being equal to the H1N1 swine flu epidemic in 2009-2010. We got, we got a little ways to go. Now, let's say that the COVID-19 death toll goes up to 60,000. And if we're going to be cavalier with counting people's lives, let's say it goes up to 80,000. But it costs us the foundations of our society in terms of private employment. I'm sensitive. I, I, I've got I've got children, you know, I've got my students who are asking these questions, my my children are asking. I mean, everybody I know is thinking about what kind of political future uh what, mm-hmm. you know, what sort of social system are we going to have in the future as a response to this? And it seems to me it could go in lots of different ways, some of which I think will make the world better. And we will have a more rational response to this in the future that minimizes the damage. It could go in other directions that I think would be really dark. Well, uh, I'm scared. What, the only thing I can see is, it's, it, it, in my analysis, the, the primary damage came from the power that the governments, and, and this is, you know, I, uh, this is, this whole thing is, is, state county and local all right Mm -hmm. the federal government hadn't participated in this overreach at all now they made some stupid suggestions but they've not actually i mean the the mayor of wichita falls is what is the problem here in wichita falls the governor of the state of texas the county judge in wichita county are the problems we're dealing with right now i'm not concerned with donald trump we're Mm -hmm. concerned with state county and local here and they have assumed the power to declare my business non-essential mm. now i don't know the you know in previous iterations of uh american history the market got to dictate whether my business was essential the my attribution to this is that 
we have become a nation of cowards. And I don't want millions of people to die, but there's no data that suggests that millions of people are going to die. And we're behaving as though they are, and they're not. Millions of people are not going to die. Millions of people were never going to die. You know, how many people does do automobile accidents cause every, kill every year? And we hadn't banned cars. It's exactly the same thing. Don't tell me it's not the same thing. It's a cost-benefit analysis. I'm, I'm glad I'm getting a, you know, nobody is talking this way back here in New Jersey and I New York. Not. And uh, I'm, I'm, I think it's, I'm glad to be part of this conversation and, and hear you saying these things. They're really interesting. And I think I'm going to talk to my students about them. I think you should, because I'd like to hear what they have to say about it. Uh, yeah, we, I mean, uh, these kids have got their, you know, you and I are old fuckers, you know, but those kids, they've got years and years and decades and decades left. And I think it would be important to understand how they want to live them. It's funny. I, I, I just yeah. remembered a friend of mine. Uh, he's a, he's a chemist who sends me things and gives me ideas to write about all the time. And just this morning he said, you know, he saw this thing that I wrote on, are we going to become more socialist as a result of this thing? And he said, why don't you talk to some libertarians? Hear what they have to say about this. Well, here you are. And here I this am. is, as far as I'm concerned, this is your 60 day free trial of socialism. Okay. Yeah, we'll see where that goes. Yeah, we sure will, won't we? Thanks for being with us, John. Sure thank appreciate you, Mark. your time. We'll talk again soon. And All thank right. you guys for being here for Starting Strength Radio. We'll see you next week. <laughs>